Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. We'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. It'll be on the screen for you guys. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body? And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, friends. Um, I have loved getting to know Hill City. Uh, I've had the privilege of uh, meeting some folks on Wednesday nights as we've been doing the Hill City School of Theology class on Old Testament. That's kind of where I spend a lot of my time thinking and and teaching in the Old Testament, but I've, I've loved getting to know Brad and Danny and some of these folks. And I bring you greetings from the Christians in Branson and Forsyth, south of here. Um, We are there, um, believe it or not, and that's where we live and uh, seek to be faithful. And it's a privilege to be with you this morning looking at a very important passage. In fact, the, the title we're working on this morning is the most important passage you've never read. Now, I'm obviously making an assumption there, and I don't mean to insult anyone, right? If you've read 2 Samuel 7, you know, please don't get your feelings hurt. The reason that I uh, settled on this title and, and thinking about this passage is in teaching and talking about the Old Testament for years, it, it blows my mind how often Christians understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of David, 
But then if you say, what's 2 Samuel 7 about? People are like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, who knows anything about Samuel? Well, I know you guys do because you've been walking through this series uh, looking at Samuel and looking at what God's doing through the kingship in the Old Testament. But I think for a lot of people, when we approach the Old Testament, we have kind of a story-driven approach that, that kind of ties into what we're doing this morning. Now, uh, I mean, the Osborne house is filled with children's Bibles. I have no problem with children's Bibles or children's books. Uh, but I think sometimes when we approach the Old Testament, we do so in a children's book kind of lens so that we think about the story of Noah. We think about the story of, of Abram. We think David and Goliath. We think Daniel and the lion's den. And, and we kind of fail to miss this big story that's unfolding across this massive part of the Christian Bible. Right? And so this morning, our message is a big picture message. I mean, we certainly are going to look at this text in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but we're going to do so with the intent of saying, how is this passage a theological hinge that holds the Old Testament and New Testament together? Because that's exactly what it is. And there are some times when you're preaching or you're speaking, you have to kind of worry about overselling how important a text is. And I don't even have to worry about that this morning. Because this passage is so important to understanding the message of the Old Testament and the message of the New Testament that really all we want to do is just jump in, right, and get started. But if we're going to understand how this passage fits together and holds it together, we do need to see what's God doing in the text. What's God been doing in this kind of covenant history? Many people see uh, 2 Samuel 7 as God's covenant to David, and we want to ask the question, what's been God doing up until then, right? And, and I don't want to belabor this, but to kind of keep us moving on this big picture uh, focus, God created some people. God created a people to bless and to be in fellowship with, and that impulse drives the whole Bible. I don't know if you know that or not, but what you see in Genesis 1 and 2, God creating a people to bless them and be with them, that drives everything that happens after this. And if you're at all familiar with the biblical story, that doesn't go well. His creatures rebel against him, and eventually sin comes to cover the earth. Well, God won't have that. And so in an act of cleansing the good world that he made, he uh, gave grace to this man named Noah and his family. And he preserved them through the flood. And after that flood, God covenanted. God established a covenant with Noah and all living creatures. Says, I'm not going to do that again. I'm making a promise to you, Noah, that that's not going to happen. But unfortunately, Noah didn't kind of fix the sin problem that humanity's facing. And so God then looks at a world that just, you know, built the Tower of Babel. People have been divided over the world, and, and we see the reality of sin and curse unfold in the story. And God goes, this is not, this is not the plan. The plan is to bless these people, and I'm going to do it. And so God calls a man by the name of Abram. And he calls him and he says to Abram, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to bless you. And in fact, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through your descendants, 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. Don't get lost in Abram and Abram's descendants, Israel, to think, oh, this is just God picking a few people and being concerned about them. No, Abram's, the plan for Abram was always blessing to the nations. Always, from Genesis chapter 12. Right? And so in this promise that God gives to Abram, we, we, we see the idea of a land, peace in the land, blessing, a great name. I tell you those things because they're going to come back up here in a little bit as we look at 2 Samuel 17. Well, Abram does have a son, and that son does grow into a great nation, but unfortunately that nation finds itself in slavery under the oppressive hand of Egypt. They're not in God's place. And God says, I'm not going to have it. And so he raises up another man named Moses to go and to deliver his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and to bring them to himself at Mount Sinai. At which point God enters into another covenant with his people at Mount Sinai that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart not like all of the nations around them, but they would mediate God's blessing to the nations by their holy living, which was laid out in these covenant stipulations or laws given through Moses. Well, this people will eventually make their way back to the promised land that God promised to Abram. But, as you've started to see looking at this series on the throne, the people get into the promised land and they have some serious problems, right? They're, they're filled with sin, they're filled with idolatry, they have this love affair with Canaanite gods, they want to be like all of the nations around them, so much so that during the period of Judges, you can't even tell the difference between Israel and their pagan Canaanite neighbors, and things get so bad that in the beginning of 1 Samuel, they go to battle against the Philistines and they lose. And the ark of God is taken out of the land. And the text tells us the glory of God departed. It's a dark day. And the people say, we want a king, right? And they get Saul. And God's looking at this and saying, I'm not going to have this either. And so... God raises up a new king, his king, King David, to lead his people. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, after David's defeated Goliath, after the death of Saul, David has, has defeated the enemies of God's people. He's captured Jerusalem. And in this celebratory worship service, David's got the ark. He marches into Jerusalem God's presence is now in the midst of his people. God's king is on the throne. Things are looking pretty good at this point in time. And this is where David begins to go to Nathan and say, I want to build God a house. So if you got your text, let's, let's pick up there in 2 Samuel 1. And just look there in the first three verses with me. Where we see David's noble desire. Okay, one of the first things that we see here is David's, David's noble desire. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. 
And clearly the Lord was with David. Right? God had been with him, and we're going to see that in a second. But there's something interesting about this passage. It opens with David admitting the imbalance that exists between his dwelling compared to God. So in this period of rest, right, David's not fighting, he's not planning for war, he's not sharpening his swords. In this moment of rest, his thoughts drift to God. Get this, right? David is at the top of his game. He's worried about the glory of God. He's worried about how God will be viewed when people see his incredible palace and they see God's presence over here in a tent. And let's just stop here and think about this because how often are we concerned about the glory of God in the moments of our highest success? We're often really quick to be concerned about God in the midst of tragedy, and rightly so. We're often prone to to go to God quickly when things are wrong. But isn't it incredibly difficult in our moments of highest success to go, God, how are you being glorified in this? I'm being celebrated in this moment, but what what does this mean in comparison to you? And we see that noble impulse through David as he has kind of achieved this moment of success in his kingly career his thought is how is God made to look good in this moment and I think we can hear that and we can say that as well how are we going to think of God's glory in those moments when we are so tempted to become drunk on our own glory David is told, go do what's in your heart, but then things kind of change a little bit, right? So if we pick up here in verse 4, we see that actually God's going to build David a house, right? So Nathan tells him, go do what's in your heart, but then he has this vision, right? God comes to him. But Nathan, that same night, the word of the Lord came to him, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus says, or excuse me, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over the people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly... From that time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Pick up right here. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Right? That's where we're driving here. Now, in the first section of those many words I just read, 
there's a question where the ESV reads, thus says the Lord God, would you build me a house to dwell in? That's a little confusing, frankly. I teach this text frequently in class, and and oftentimes people, when they read this text, they're going, well, God's asking David to build him a house, right? Actually, the answer is no. And I, I think that the NIV actually translates this a little easier. The NIV reads, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? And the idea is this is a rhetorical question that's being posed to David. God's saying, would you build me a house to dwell in? Right? Which you can kind of hear it if you're like reading it out loud. The idea is, David, would you do this? Because I've never asked anyone to do this for me. In all the days that the judges were traveling around, all these days I've lived in a tent, I've never asked anyone uh, to build me a house. And I frankly didn't ask you to build me a house. And this is interesting, especially in light of kind of the historical setting of this passage, right? I mean, the Bible comes to us in a historical reality with ancient peoples at ancient times. There are lots of people building temples, lots of kings building temples in the ancient world. This isn't a unique phenomenon. But one of the things that's fascinating about this passage is Israel's God doesn't really have a insecurity temple complex. It's pretty common in the ancient world for gods to go to their kings and be like, you will build me a temple. You will worship me. You will build me a temple and fill it with priests who will make sacrifices and and do all of these types of things. God does not seem to be very preoccupied with his dwelling. God is more concerned about what he's going to do for David. Right? And so, um, as we see this play out, temples of the ancient world were for the feeding and caring of the gods. Priests daily attended to them. Kings built the temple. Worshippers paid homage. And this was all an effort to steer and manipulate divine power. That's not how religion works in the Old Testament. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 4 shows us that you can get two priests who say, hey, let's get the ark of God. That's going to give us victory. It doesn't work that way. Israel's God is not Dagon, is not Ishtar, is not Marduk, is not any of these other gods. And he certainly isn't a divine rabbit's foot that's going to be manipulated to get what you want. And so David I appreciate your noble desire, God says, but actually I'm going to build you a house, right? And so as God addresses David uh, through the prophet Nathan, we begin to see how this passage is drawing upon what God has already been doing through his people, right? So in language that immediately takes us back to God's covenant promises to Abram, we hear how God is going to do for David what he promised to do to Abram. He's going to make him a great nation. He's going to give him a land. He's going to bless him in that land, and he's going to give them peace and security from all of their enemies, God's covenant promises to David are not this kind of uh, divine reboot of a system in light of Israel's failure. This is God continuing the covenant-keeping ark that's been unfolding from the book of Genesis. He's going to keep his promise to Abram by keeping his promise to David. And those two covenant currents come together in the New Testament, as we'll see in a second. 
But in this passage here, we see the unilateral promise that God makes to Abram will become the unconditional promise declared to David. No stipulations, right? There's no covenant code in 2 Samuel 17. God doesn't come and say, you know, keep this list of laws. If you do these things, then I will uh, establish your throne forever. That's not the case. Right? We see no stipulations, no disobedience will override this plan. David's security and future is not bound up in his own efforts. And the point here, friends, is that everything is riding on what God is going to do, not what David is going to do. David's legacy will not be David the temple builder. God is going to build David's legacy. It's going to be what God is going to do through him. And in this, we catch a glimpse of the gospel. The gospel is God's covenant declaration of what he has done for us and is continuing to do through us. God delivers David from the field, from his enemies, and then works through his broken history to accomplish his purposes. And in the same way, God delivers us. God brings us to salvation and then works through our broken histories to accomplish his plan through us. The biblical doctrine of salvation is God's covenant promise to us and through us. So often we see God's saving work as something God is just going to do in me. Which, I mean, that's true, right? I mean, we're all sitting here because God has been at work in us. But we fail to see how God is actually using us as his vessels of transformation to go out as well. So, I mean, we don't get the same type of unique promise that David gets, right? There's something unique about David. But at the same time, our Lord says to us, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Right? If we don't see how this gospel that changed us is working through us to change others, maybe we're a little wrapped up in our own little building projects. And we need to go, God, give me this global picture of your salvation. Because God wasn't really wrapped up in a temple. Because God is not bound to a building. right? God already had a place to dwell. It was creation. And David himself gets that in Psalm 139 where he says, Lord, where can I go from your presence? God's not concerned about a little building with some people in it. God has a cosmic redemptive plan. David had a role to play. David's son will have an ultimate role to play. And friends, we have a role to play in that. But let's look now in verse 12 at the future of David's house, right? At the future of David's house. So pick up there and and read with me in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for your, uh, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan's word to David addresses David's past. He speaks to David's present. And then we have this prophetic uh, vision of David's future. And in verse 12, the Lord explains to David that after he dies, one of his children will reign on his throne and his kingdom be established forever. And people read this and we read it and we're like, yes, Jesus. Well, yes and no, right? I mean, there's some aspects of this text that are like, well, yeah, that sounds like Jesus. But I mean, then you get to the passage where it says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rods of men. I mean, no, no, that's not Jesus. Right? We know Jesus did not commit iniquity or commit sin. And so this passage is telling us in a, in a kind of an explicit statement that David will have a son from his own body who will build God a temple and uh, will reign on his throne. And we come to know that son as Solomon. Right? So as you're, the, the series is moving on, you're going to see like the, the kingship continues. It's going to, to move through the line of Solomon, uh, David's son. And Solomon is going to build uh, God a temple, but we also know that Solomon is tragically going to commit iniquity and that he will go after other gods. But there is going to be continually a son of David and Solomon on the throne. Right? So God is telling David, Your house will be made sure forever. So there's, two, there's, a, there's a twofold promise here. Okay, God is making a promise about an heir from David's body that will build him a temple that will commit iniquity, but the dynasty will not end with him. That is Solomon. And then God's saying, and I will establish your throne forever. So coming back to, to children's Bibles, there's a, a Bible, the Big Picture Bible by David Chapman. I love the language. She says, God is promising a forever king. I love that language because we don't know who this king is. We don't know what it's going to look like. But 2 Samuel 7, God says, there will be a forever king, David, on your throne. And this is a massive promise, right? For God to come to David and say, your throne will be established forever is huge. Everything else now has to change. Right? When God says, I will establish your throne forever, that has to have massive implications. And in fact, this promise created a faithful expectation for the next thousand years so that God's people continually asked, who is this son of David? Who is the king from David's line who's going to reign on the throne? Now, tragically, this passage, 2 Samuel 7, in many ways is kind of the high watermark of David's life. And as you keep reading through the book of 2 Samuel, you see um, David's latter years begin to foreshadow the dark horizons in Israel's future. 
David's life is, he sins, right? With Bathsheba, with the census, all of these things that, that don't go well. And then Solomon has his pinnacle moment with the temple and exercising wisdom, but then he too turns to idols. And then Solomon's son Rehoboam is an absolute train wreck and the kingdom divides. And from that point on, it really becomes a downward spiral of kingship until eventually the nation of Babylon will come and destroy the city of Jerusalem. This temple that David was wanting to build will one day be left in ashes. And the question everyone was asking themselves was, but God made a promise. God said, David, your throne will last forever. How do we reconcile that? How do we make sense of that? Well, God keeps his promise and God sent other prophets. Just as Nathan spoke to David, God sent other prophets as his divine mouthpiece to his people. Listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise... I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days, and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. So Jeremiah says, yes, there is no king right now in Jerusalem. Jehoiakim's been taken to exile in Babylon. It looks as though the promise is dead. It looks as though God's promise to David's dynasty is like a massive tree that's been chopped down. And there's no signs of hope. And Jeremiah says, God's going to raise up a righteous branch from David. And he will execute justice and righteousness. Another prophet comes to the people, a guy by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah again picks up this language and he says, Therefore, or excuse me, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And Jesse's David's father. So this shoot is like a new David growing up out of his father's line. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then listen to one other prophet, a guy who himself lived in exile in Babylon, in the heart of uh, God's people in Babylon, Ezekiel communicates the word of the Lord. He says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I love that. It's one of my favorite lines in Ezekiel. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And in the midst of a people wondering what is God going to do with us, in the midst of exile, the prophets explain that God will not abandon his promise. Exile is real and it is hard, 
But God's word will still stand. He has promised an anointed one, a Messiah, who's going to come in the spirit of the Lord and execute justice and righteousness and be a good shepherd for God's people. And the people of Israel and the people of Judah heard the word of the prophet and they looked forward in faith. And friends, the New Testament would actually call us sojourners and exiles. This is the language Peter uses to describe the church, that we are sojourners and exiles awaiting our heavenly home this morning. And Paul tells us that if all of our hope, if all of our hope right now is in this life, then we are to be pitied and we're fools. We are looking forward to our heavenly home. Everything for us is riding on the coming king. And like Israel in exile, we encounter suffering and hardship. Some of you are living this right now. You are in the midst of suffering and hardship. And the word exile and punishment or judgment, these things feel real. You're wrestling. Is God punishing me? What's going on with what I'm dealing with? But Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8... That the present suffering that we experience doesn't compare to what's going to be revealed when our coming king returns. That there's going to be a glory that we see that we go, you know what, none of this compares. Exile, our sojourn, it doesn't compare to that glory. And so, like Simeon in Luke's gospel, who's filled with the Spirit, waiting for the revealing of God's Messiah, we too, as God's people, Await our coming King, looking forward to Jesus' second coming as we live as exiles in faith. But eventually, David's promise would be fulfilled, right? This story doesn't just end at the Old Testament. And even though the Old Testament prophets are filled with these promises about God going to keep his promise to David, we know that eventually this promise gets fulfilled. So that when we turn the page to Matthew chapter 1, the first thing Matthew tells you that he wants you to know about Jesus is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And why does he want you to know that? Why does Matthew want you to know that first off? Because he wants you to understand that this Jewish Messiah is stepping into the promised line of David and Abraham. That these two covenantal currents are running together and we see Jesus emerging as the coming king who's going to fulfill the blessings to Abraham and is going to keep God's covenant promises to David. And in fact, David is so important that he becomes the topic of conversation in Peter's first Christian sermon in the New Testament. So if you've, if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Acts 2. So we're going to just jump to Acts 2 here for, for one minute in Acts chapter 2. So if you're at all familiar with the book of Acts, Jesus has, has, been ascend, Jesus has ascended to the Father. Uh, the, the apostles have received the Holy Spirit. They've got tongues of fire on their heads. They're proclaiming the gospel and people are accusing them of being drunk because they're speaking in other languages. And Peter, uh, compelled by the Spirit, is, is kind of thrown into uh, this sermon that we hear recorded in Acts 2. The first Christian sermon. And, and 
Peter goes, listen, these people are not drunk, as you might believe. They're not, you know, this is, this is crazy. This is a fulfillment of the scriptures. And then pick up in, in Acts 2.29, where he begins to explain the relationship of David and Jesus. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Right, so Peter, in this first message, declares that David prophetically spoke about the covenant God made through him and what God was going to do with him. And he says, listen, David died. But Christ has been raised. David's reign ended. But Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Therefore, he is God and Messiah. Or in the language, Lord and Christ. And so as we wrap up this morning, thinking about this text, right? This, this covenant promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7. The Bible is God's self-revelation of his own covenant keeping. God makes promises. God keeps his promises. And this isn't just an ancient historical fact. Right? Sometimes I think when we get thrown into the Old Testament, we can get really wrapped up in the ancient history of it all. It's really, you know, kings and temples and all these kind of antiquated realities. But the New Testament would tell us this isn't ancient history. Right? This isn't ancient history. In fact, Acts 2, 38-39 tells us this isn't. As Peter wraps up his message to his audience there at Pentecost, he tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Friends, the promise is for you this morning. The son of David has come. Mercy was in his hands. He healed those who cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He suffered. His kingly robe was drenched in blood. His coronation was a crown of thrones. He was exalted but to a cross of suffering and shame God's promise still stands for us this king king Jesus offers forgiveness and salvation to all 
who repent and believe. And this is God's promise to us this morning. And we're going to remember it with a covenant meal. The same God who walked with Israel through their idolatry, through their exile, summons you to a table of repentance and forgiveness this morning. This bread is a broken king suffering for his people. And this blood is covenant atoning blood for our sins. God has made a promise. God has kept his promise. And we live in that promise. Take and believe this morning. Let me pray.